Tonight on Fig Tree Watchers, it is Resurrection Week. It's Apologetic Saturday, and we're going to prove to you that the resurrection happened and that Resurrection Week proves that God exists. That's next here on Fig Tree Watchers. So stay tuned. Hey, it's going to be a great week, everyone, and you're going to love this. But you know what it's all about? It's about believing, right? It's about believing in Jesus. And uh, that's what it comes down to. So do you believe? Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that God uh, raised Jesus from the dead? Do you believe in the whole week, you know, from Palm Sunday? Well, Brother Io and I, are, we're going to discuss this tonight, and it is going to be one episode you're not going to want to miss. Uh, so bear with us, stay tuned, and uh, you're going to love this tonight. It is going to be incredible. As always, we want to remind you that you can go to our website at figtreewatchers.com. There's a new post by me called The Congruency of Godly Sorrow. You can read that post. More importantly, you can listen to the broadcast. You can check out our Telegram site. Uh, you can look at the notes from last night's uh, live in which we did the news events of the week and how they relate to Bible prophecy. You can uh, check out all the cool stuff that we have up there. Uh, 5 and 10 news, uh, podcasts. In fact, we'd love for you to check out the podcast on all the major platforms. Uh, Fig Tree Watchers on the podcast platform that you listen to the most. So it's going to be an incredible weekend. We just want to uh, thank you so much for joining us. We pray that God blesses you as we go through this Apologetic Saturday, the proof of the resurrection week and how it proves God and how it proves that Jesus is God. So that is awesome. I want to bring my partner on, Io from Mission Study. He just came into the room and we want to say God bless you all and thank you so much for joining us. Oh boy, we got a good group in here tonight. going to be a great night tonight. Hey, everybody. Hey, brother. Hey, how are you? Doing well. How about yourself? Good. Man, we got a, a good uh, study tonight, don't we? Yep, we do. Yep. Something to look forward to, and I hope you guys are looking forward to it. And I hope you guys brought your notebooks or some type of writing, you know, material paper and brought a pen or pencil, because you're going to need to take notes for this, or at least re-listen to it or re-watch it. It's going to be good. Yeah, it is, it is going to be pretty amazing um, tonight, and we definitely um, have a lot to share with you. Yeah. Um, so why don't, you, why don't we uh, pray? Why don't you lead us in prayer, and then we'll get started. Sure. Uh, Father, we just come before you today, Lord, just so thankful, excited, uh, just for uh, the fact that we are entering, you know, uh, Resurrection Sunday, Lord, which for some of us, it's already Resurrection Sunday. Uh, for others, Resurrection Sunday is just uh, nearly a few hours. Uh, we just thank you that we can just celebrate with joy, knowing that we have eternal life through the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, Lord. I pray that during this time, your Spirit just moves. You use Brother Stefan and I to uh, clearly elaborate on that point, which is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, uh, to testify to that truth and to use this opportunity, Lord, to also give a defense for that truth uh, as we look at history, as we look at about prophecy as well uh, that alludes to the fact that those things actually happen in history that Jesus is God and we have hope in him if we put our trust in him 
So just pray that use this time for your glory, Lord, and the salvation of many. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. 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 Welcome, everyone that joined us uh, here. Um, I saw a couple people, Rav Shear, if you can kind of rattle off the Bible verses, put them in the notes for us, we'd really appreciate it. Um, because this is kind of going to be a, a big uh, discussion tonight um, as uh, we really uh, get into it. Um, tonight, I'm going to start out first, and then Brother Io is going to finish. And the reason why is I'm actually going to be covering what happened this last Sunday, which is Resurrection Sunday. Uh, I mean, Palm Sunday. And, yep. and I was going to finish off with Resurrection Sunday, which is tomorrow. So um, I'm going to, I have a lot. I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as I can because Brother Io has a ton also. Sounds and um, we're going to be covering Resurrection Week and how it proves God's existence and that Jesus is God. Uh, that is exactly it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And uh, so let's get started with this right away. The, the very first thing that we need to come to is understand that the Old Testament predicted Jesus. Um, in fact, all scriptures point towards Jesus. So we're going to go to Psalms 118, uh, verses 19 through 24. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them. I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through uh, which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Mm -hmm. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Yeah. So this is the day that the Lord will rejoice, that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. And then he brings up this important uh, scripture which is what Jesus did on Palm Sunday. And that is Luke uh, chapter 19, 41 through 44. Now, as he drew near, he saw the eyes of the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation mm -hmm. so jesus is coming there saying this is the day that psalms 118 was predicting but we come to this important thing and we ask this question from luke 1941 through 44 how do we know that this was literally the day that was prophesied? Like, I mean, you can make the argument, well, that's nice. That Psalm is kind of cool. Um, it, 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 it prophesies that Jesus was coming. But how do we know that this was the day? Well, we understand that from Daniel 9.25. And I'm going to read this to you. Um, Daniel 9.25, the prophet Daniel is telling you, know therefore and understand so number one you have to know and understand what daniel's about to say he wants it very clear it's a clear and concise prophecy that daniel has written down in the scriptures that the going forth of the command to restore and build jerusalem until the messiah the prince there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks the street shall be built again and the walls even in troublesome times. So he's saying that from the command of it. Well, 
This is interesting because the command was issued in Ezra um, chapter 6, 1 through 5. Then King Darius issued a command and search was made in the archives and the treasures were stored in Babylon and at Amethia and the place that its province of Media, a scroll was found and it is a record was written thus in the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of the God at Jerusalem. Let the house be real, be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifice and let the foundation of it firmly be laid, its heights uh, 60 cubits, its width 60 cubits, and three rows of heavy stones and one row, a new timber. Let the expense be paid for from the king's treasury. Also let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem and be brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place and deposit them in the house of God. So here's what it's recording in the Bible that King Cyrus made a decree. Well, wouldn't you know it? Archaeology has discovered that cylinder. It's called the Cyrus cylinder. And on it is the decree right here, the command going forth to build and restore the temple. Okay. So it's the command that goes forth. And that happened, that command happened, we know, on March 14th, 455 BC. Now here's the important thing. There's a little math involved. If you take the 69 weeks that Daniel uh, has and you multiply it by seven years, it's, it's 483 years it comes out to you, okay? Because each week has seven days in it and that represents the number that you calculate out. If you take that number and you break it down by 360 days, because under the Jewish calendar, it was a lunar calendar, 360 days, you break that down, you come to 173,880 days. To the very day that it comes is April 6th, 32 AD, the day of Palm Sunday. Literally seven days beforehand, seven days. But this is a big deal. Because we can see in Scripture that Luke 19.42, which I just read from, which predicted that Jesus said, if you'd only know the day of my visitation, if you'd understood the Scriptures, but because you didn't, he says, you didn't, you missed it. And it's, and it's clear because he wants you to understand. Um, and he's weeping over Jerusalem. He's saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, Jerusalem, your day, the people of Israel, that the things that make for you peace, but Israel missed it. Now, here's the important thing to understand in this, because there's a couple of great scriptures that also prophesied this, that proved that Jesus is God. And this is so important. It's not just we have the archaeology evidence of the Cyrus cylinder, the scroll, the command to restore Jerusalem, the date. But it was prophesied also in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is interesting because this was also fulfilled by Jesus on that day. Uh, 
in Matthew 21, 2 through 3, it says, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now that's important. So Jesus enters in Jerusalem, and there's a great praise that comes out. In John um, uh, 12, 13, John writes these words about when Jesus enters through the gates. They took out branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So they were seeing this complete fulfillment, but these palm branches are also a fulfillment of scripture. Leviticus 23:40 says, and you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the beautiful trees. What was Palm Sunday? It was a Sunday. What is it? The first day of the week. First day of the week. And here's the fulfillment that you need to listen to. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and the willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. What happened on the seventh day? Salvation. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So in the scripture, we can see that it proves both the Old Testament prophecies going back all the way to the book of Leviticus, which is a book that describes the coming Savior, Jesus, through the book of Zechariah, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ to Israel, the way the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ to the church. We can see the Old Testament prophecies prophesying about the coming Messiah for Palm Sunday, revealing in detail, specific detail, proven by archaeology, the Cyrus Cylinder that was there, that for 173, 888 days, on April the 6th, 32 AD, Jesus entered into, entered into Jerusalem as the scriptures stated, fulfilling the scriptures on a donkey, a colt, with branches being waved to fulfill Leviticus 23, 40, so that he could prove to you that Palm Sunday is the absolute proof that Jesus is God and that God exists. That's the proof. And this is an amazing thing to see and understand. And I just wanted to share that with you tonight. Uh, Brother Io is going to come up next. And uh, I wanted to give him lots of time because Brother Io has really got a lot of detail out tonight. But thank you um, for listening to this. Uh, and may it help you in your understanding and in your apologetic faith of knowing that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is God. And he is Lord. And Palm Sunday proves that Jesus is God and God exists. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, brother. Yeah, and that's, that's great stuff to, to keep in mind because we even remember that after Jesus was resurrected on the Emmaus Road with two of the, the people, individuals he talked to, um, they didn't know it was Jesus. You know, they asked him, he asked them, you know, what, what happened? Are you guys, you know, sad or whatever? And they asked him, oh, have you not, you know, have you been in Jerusalem this whole time? Have you not heard what happened? Um, you know, the, the prophet was killed or whatever. And then he told them, he's like, oh, you foolish and slow of heart to believe what's been written in the scriptures. And then from the scriptures, from everything in the scriptures, he expounded to them 
everything written concerning him from the Old Testament, right? So we know that the Old Testament uh, talks about the coming Messiah, talks about Christ, and talks about his crucifixion and eventual resurrection. So thank you for bringing those things in. Now, what I'm going to be talking about is the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection evidences for those. Why can we say that those things actually happen? Um, because for the past few months, we've focused on the reliability of Scripture. That's great. We know the Scripture is reliable. Uh, for the past two months, I believe, we've focused on the reliability or the historical reliability that Jesus Christ existed. So I think the, the next obvious um, place to go to is, well, why can we say that it is credible to make the claim that he was crucified and buried and that he was resurrected? Are there any arguments for that? Is there any historical claims to make? For that, and there is. So right now, I'm going to go through six arguments for the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. Um, these six arguments are going to be multiple sources that test the crucifixion, multiple sources that test the burial of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb, appearances of the risen Christ by many, disciples willing to suffer for what they believed, and then the conversion of non-believers. And there's other arguments two people make, but these are just like very common ones I wanted to. Uh, uh, go to and there's various sources I use for this um, which are just great sources um, one is the article the bodily resurrection of Jesus that goes through these points one is what skeptical scholars admit about the resurrection appearance of Jesus and another one is a book I've been using called evidence that demands a verdict so I just pull these together um, to basically make this case so first one is multiple sources to test the crucifixion um, so it is attested to by several sources throughout the New Testament, as well as non-Christian sources like Josephus and other non-Christian sources, um, that Jesus Christ was truly crucified. And there are many quotes from secular New Testament historians, Christian New Testament historians that would say that, hey, it is the fact of history, like the certain fact of history, that Jesus Christ was crucified under the orders of Pontius Pilate. So it's not even, it's not, it's no debate. You know, if someone comes up to you like, oh, Jesus was never crucified, they were just woefully ignorant of the historical reality of that, sorry. And I know Muslims make that claim. Uh, I even spoke to one of my Muslim coworkers a few days back about, about Easter and everything. But Muslims will make the claim that, oh no, you know, Allah, this says in the Quran that Allah made it appear to be that, you know, Jesus was crucified. He made someone else look like Jesus was crucified, but again, that doesn't stand the claim or, or the test of time in history. So uh, this article says, when there are multiple independent sources that test to an event, historians believe that this increases the likelihood that the event has occurred. And that's the crucifixion. Thus, these multiple independent sources that report Jesus' death by crucifixion adds to a greater probability. So again, we have in the Gospels various accounts that Jesus was crucified. And we also have non-Christian sources that Jesus was crucified because of the plurality or the amount of those testimonies from both Christian and non-Christian sources, we can conclude that, yeah, this actually happened. The crucifixion actually happened. Another okay, thing, so, so yeah. let's, go, let's go over a couple of the things that you got there for just a second. Um, what are, when we talk about non-Christian sources, you're talking about sources that are outside the Bible, or you're talking about um, uh, sources maybe using some church fathers, or are you just saying clearly outside of the, the, the Christian faith? I'm talking about like outside of the Bible. So non-biblical, okay. non extra-biblical sources. So like Josephus, Testus, um, I mean, Clement of Rome and things like that would be outside of the New Testament. We can even consider those. 
those would be Christian sources, but that's just like extra biblical because it's not canon. Um, so things like that. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Yeah. So these sources then cite that Jesus was both crucified um, and give credence to that, to that fact. And they are not just Christian sources. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So that's the credibility. Uh, another great thing under this um, argument of the crucifixion here is the embarrassing, de embarrassing details that the Bible portrays concerning Jesus' crucifixion, as well as just the historical understanding of the Jewish thought during that time and how Romans saw crucifixion, essentially just boils down to the fact that if, you know, people at the time wanted to invent the religion Christianity with the crucifixion of their, you know, of Jesus or their martyr, whoever their favorite person was, they would not invent this new religion by having their guy, their person be crucified because crucifixion was just the lowest of the low, right? It was the worst thing that could happen to you and just didn't make sense for someone to invent a new religion by having their person being crucified. Uh, so this article here says the event is embarrassing, so crucifixion, and not something that the earliest disciples will likely have invented. For the Jews, one who was crucified was considered to be under a curse. The Romans too would have seen the cross as a folly since it was considered a punishment reserved for slaves. So because Jesus was crucified and because many people believed in his crucifixion, that attests to the fact that it actually happened. It wouldn't make sense again for someone to invent this religion uh, and say, oh, this person was crucified when crucifixion was seen as the worst thing that could be done. It was seen as a shame. Um, and also we know that after Jesus was crucified, his disciples basically scattered. They were scared. They were afraid of, of Roman persecution. And again, if this story was made up, humans, human people, men who would write this story and make it up, they would not put those embarrassing details there. So the argument is because those embarrassing details there, that the disciples fled, that they were afraid um, at the sight of Jesus' crucifixion, it attests the fact that what is recorded there is simply true. It's not made up. It's actually true events that, that was recorded in the scripture. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Um, what else is, uh, what else do you have for us tonight? Yeah. Next, we're moving on to multiple sources that test the burial of Jesus Christ. So we know that historically speaking, Jesus Christ was crucified next to his buried, right? And that's part of the gospel as well. Jesus was, uh, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose on the third day. So there are multiple sources reporting Jesus' burial. The earliest tradition comes from the creed that Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, which many scholars date to the early 30s AD. The only positive evidence we have regarding Jesus' burial is unanimous that Jesus was, in fact, buried. No competing burial accounts exist. Additionally, archaeology provides evidence that crucified victims received the proper burial. And they actually cite a historical uh, um, discovery here that attests the fact that burials actually did happen after people were crucified. Uh, so they note here in 1968, a crucifixion victim named uh, Ye Honan was found in Oshuary, where bones were placed of the deceased. That has been dated to 30 AD, the exact same decade Jesus was crucified and buried. So multiple sources attesting to the burial of Jesus Christ, again, adds credence to the fact that it actually happens. And we also have archeological evidence that burials or uh, um, yeah, burials of people who were crucified actually happened at the time because that's what the gospels recorded happened to Jesus. So that's also something we can know for certain happened and, and trust. So 
to make it very clear, we have an actual example of a crucified victim who was buried in an ossuary, according to Jewish custom, in Israel. Yeah. Wow. So this matches up exactly with the account of the scriptures when it comes to Jesus, who was crucified in the same manner, buried by friends in a borrowed tomb. This matches up with the scriptures. Yep, exactly. Okay, awesome, awesome. Exactly. Yeah, so the next one is a really fun one, the empty tomb. Um, so the opponents of Jesus inadvertently acknowledge that the tomb was empty when they claim the disciples stole Jesus' body. Um, so I think next time we talk about this, or next month, I want to go over the naturalistic explanations for the empty tomb. Right now, we're just going to cover the evidences we have for the tomb, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. But it's also a good thing to go over the naturalistic explanations, because a lot of people will, you know, kind of be like, oh, you know, the disciples just hallucinated that Jesus was resurrected, right? Or that Jesus actually didn't die, that he somehow, you know, he somehow just fainted after the crucifixion, and then he got up himself. So we're going over those points, but the point I'm, the reason I'm bringing all, that up is that a lot of those claims, they presuppose that the tomb was empty anyways, which is a very important fact, because that's what the Bible attests. Uh, that's what uh, historical evidence attests to. And even people who don't want to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when they make arguments against it, they have to presuppose that the tomb is empty, which we have to, you know, remember. So again, the opponents of Jesus inadvertently acknowledge that the tomb was empty when they claim that the disciples stole Jesus' body. This claim seeks to explain why the tomb was empty rather than denying that it was actually empty. So just because you're offering a different reason as to why it's empty, just because you're denying the resurrection, you're not actually denying it's empty, which is the point that Christians are making, that it was empty, that just rose from the dead. Their early message of the resurrection was proclaimed in Jerusalem. Listen to this, guys. This is important. The early message of the resurrection was proclaimed in Jerusalem, thus making the earliest apostles claim easily verifiable since the tomb was in that very city. And Paul, too, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he gives the gospel, he says that, hey, this is the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. And then he lists the eyewitness testimonies. And he says, these people are still alive. Why does he say that? Because he's saying that you can verify for yourself what I just told you. And that's what they're saying here. Because the tomb was empty, it was in Jerusalem. If word spread that, hey, the tomb was empty, anybody can go there for themselves and look. Because it was at the time the apostles were still alive. It was at the time Paul was still alive. And that's a huge reason to believe that this is true. Now, another important aspect to this is the Jewish response to the empty tomb. Jewish response to the empty tomb assumes uh, that the tomb was empty. So this is evidence that demands a verdict. Uh, they said the earliest Jewish response to the resurrection assumes the tomb was empty. The only polemic offered by the Jews for which we have any historical evidence is the one recorded in Matthew 28, 11 to 15. I'll just read that quick. So that one says, Matthew 28, 11 through 15 says, Now while they were going... Behold, some of the guard came to the city and reports the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. So what Matthew 20, 11, and 15 is describing to us is the Jews came 
to the to the soldiers at the time to bribe them that said hey these people saying that jesus christ is resurrected let's squash that how do we squash that you take this bribe and you tell people who asked that the disciples came and took his body away well where are the jews admitting to they're admitting to the fact that the tomb was empty so <laughs> which is again another evidence for the fact that the tomb was empty that we can believe this uh, the the book goes on to say this this text could not have been written if at the time of the writing there was not a jewish counter argument to the christian understanding of the empty tomb but the jewish argument does not dispute the tomb was empty it just gives an alternate explanation this is a significant historic fact this is strong evidence the tomb was in fact empty um, so that's just things we have to note, guys, that when people offer a counter-argument to say that, hey, Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, he's not God, uh, the, the disciples probably stole his body. Oh, Jesus, you know, actually didn't die on the cross, he just fainted, and he just got up and walked away. Well, all of those arguments just presuppose the tomb was empty anyways. So you can't, you can't wish it away. You can't wish the empty tomb away. And again, if, the, if this story was made up, if the disciples just made it up in its fiction, well, anybody could have went to the tomb in Jerusalem to verify it, right? But nobody did. That never happened. So why is that? The only plausible explanation is that the tomb was truly empty and that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Um, any any comments to those arguments? No, you know what I mean? That, that right there, I think, is one of the, the biggest issues is that well, there is no evidence to dispute that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Yeah. On the contrary, the evidence is dramatic that Jesus yeah. did. Um, you you take into account that uh, the lives that were changed because of it. You take into yeah. account the yeah, exactly. eyewitness accounts mm -hmm. uh, that are numerous. I mean, uh, and Paul articulates this with le like a lawyer uh, coming out of Harvard. You know, they came out of Harvard Law School, right? He's <laughs> articulating it with precise measurement that. Jesus rose from the dead and there's witnesses and he's going down the list of witnesses finally ending with himself that yeah. he himself had seen the risen Lord. Um, and remember, Paul was a guy who was murdering Christians. Mm -hmm. So he, what changed? Why did he go from being this Jew that hated Christians to suddenly going, wait a moment, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be killing you anymore because I saw the Messiah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and just let's read that for people too. First Corinthians 15, five to eight. Again, after Paul gives the, the gospel in the first four verses, in verse five, he starts listing the witnesses. He says, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, note this, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. That's verse six. What is he saying there? In verse six, he's saying that, hey, yeah, we have Peter as witness. We have the 12 uh, apostles. But also, we have 500 people Jesus rose to, and most of them are still alive to this day. Why is he saying that? Because he wants you to go to those people yourself and fact check him, fact check his claim. So that's a very, <laughs> that's a very bold thing that Paul is doing. And he's doing that because he knows that what he's saying is true. Verse 7, after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born of due time. Something I'm going to go over that's also important about Paul's statements here is that he not only notes individuals that Jesus appeared to, he notes the groups that Jesus appeared to. Why it's important that Paul notes that Jesus appeared to a group 
is because a lot of critics will say that, well, the disciples or these people just hallucinated. Well, that hallucination theory falls apart because mass hallucination isn't a thing. Maybe one or two people can hallucinate the same thing, but not 500 people. Uh, at that point, you're just making up conspiracy theory. So that's so important that Paul is saying that, hey, Jesus appeared to a group of people because it totally throws that hallucination theory out of the water. And again, I hope that uh, Lord willing next month will go over uh, some of these naturalistic theories people have to argue against the resurrection uh, and the crucifixion and burial of Jesus Christ. So the next, push we're, the next portion of this we're going to go through, after looking at the crucifixion, after looking through the burial in the empty tomb, is the appearances of the risen Christ. There's several facets to this uh, that I'm going to look into here. So the first thing, um, they said that the earliest list of appearances found in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8, when we just read through that, um, of course, appearances are also reported in Matthew, Luke, and John. The group appearances, and they, they make this claim too, the group appearances are important because they argue very strongly against the possibility of hallucinations. So that was just something I was just talking about there. That's very important that Paul is pointing that out. Um, New Testament scholar Paula Fredrickson in the 2000 ABC documentary, and this is an interesting thing I know uh, I found, the search for Jesus noted on the post-resurrection uh, appearances of Jesus. She says here, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. So this is, again, Paula Fredrickson. She appeared in a 2000 ABC documentary, The Search for Jesus. She's not a Christian, but she's talking about the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what she's saying. She says, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attest to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian that they must have seen something. And this is just so interesting because when you do your homework on this, what you'll see essentially is that no New Testament scholar, no one worth their salt can say that there's any evidence that argues against the resurrection of Jesus. Nice. All they can just say is that, well, they believe that. And when you kind of corner them, they're just like, well, I don't know what happened. They saw something, but I don't know what they saw. Because they don't want to believe in the supernatural. The only, it can only, if you're just honest with yourself and honest with the evidence, you can only end up to the conclusion that Jesus was raised from the dead. But they just say, well, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know what they saw. So that's kind of what she's saying here. That she, They must have seen something, but what it was beats me. I don't know what she saw, or I don't know what they saw. Uh, so this article here continues, Fredrickson is not alone in supposing that these followers must have seen something. Virtually every biblical scholar across the Western world, regardless of religious background, agrees that Jesus' earliest followers believed that he appeared to them alive. That Jesus appeared to more than 500 men and women, at the same time, his truly remarkable claim, Paul boldly puts his credibility online when he mentions that most of them are still alive. And that's something I referenced to earlier as well. Um, so next piece of this is that women were the first ones to discover the empty tomb and give an account of the uh, empty tomb. And that's very important due to uh, how women were perceived and um, related to at that time. Because they're essentially second-class citizens. They weren't even treated like, <laughs> like humans almost. Um, so evidence that demands a verdict. They said the first people to experience and proclaim the empty tomb were the woman followers. And again, that's a very important thing. If one were to fabricate an empty tomb and risen Jesus in that culture, one would not cite women as eyewitnesses, given their low status as credible witnesses. 
and you can uh, fact check me on this, brother, but I believe that at that time, a woman's testimony was like half of that of a man's, maybe not even. Uh, I think it's about half, but essentially, the woman's testimony in, law, in the court of law was seen as worthless. So for women, for Jesus to appear to women first and women to be the first ones to announce the resurrection and for that to be recorded in the Bible is like mind blowing. That's not something that can be fabricated. And when we put into context that again, there is embarrassing uh, facts in the book, right? Jesus was crucified. The disciples after that ran away. Women were the ones to proclaim the risen Christ. All these embarrassing things uh, just can't be made up if you truly want to make up some religion. It, the only conclusion we can reach is that this truly happened. It's a fact of history and that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Yeah, I mean, if it was such a fraudulent thing, you wouldn't make the disciples of Jesus go, hey, uh, let's let's say that we didn't run away. Let's mm -hmm. tell, you know, a different story that we were there, we stood by him. But no, in order to fulfill the scriptures, and dude, they admit, no, we ran away. We were cowards. You know, the only one who stayed was John. Um, and, and I think that that's incredible. Um, there's a great uh, book out there that I just want to intercede on this moment, which is yeah. um, talks about the, the death of, of Jesus. And he brings up this very point that you're bringing up, and it's called The Crucifixion of Jesus. A medical doctor examines the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, and that's by Joseph W. Um, I'm going to butcher his name really bad, but it's Bergeron, B-E-R-G-E-R-O-N. And so he examines it. But one of the things he talks about is um, the psychological mechanisms that ultimately led to Jesus' death, but also mm -hmm. prove that, that it, this is a true account, a trustworthy account. And he would yeah. agree with you on this. And I think you're bringing up some valid points on it. Yeah, yeah. So these are things we have to look into. And another piece of this, and I'll move on to the uh, next portion of this argument, which is disciples willing to suffer. The next piece of this for the appearance of the risen Christ is that the type of resurrection that happened to Jesus went against the grain of Jewish thought at the time. So what do I mean by that? Evidence that demand a verdict says the disciples claim that they encountered a physical resurrected Jesus was not an idea they would have borrowed from anyone else. It did not arise from within their own belief system. So this was completely, so to declare that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead, again, that went against Jewish thought. It wasn't an idea they could just invent and it would just you know, miraculously pick up with time. Um, this is something that truly they witnessed and they just told, right? So they say the second temple, the second temple of Judaism of Jesus' day had no concept of disembodied resurrection. Those Jews who believed in the afterlife believed in a general resurrection of all people at the end of history. Therefore, just resurrection differed from this view in that it happened in history, not at the end of history, and that it happened to an individual. So again, I just kind of want to rephrase that for you guys so you understand. So at the time, the Jews who believed in the resurrection, because remember, if you remember, I think it says here, Mark 12, 18, there's a few... Sadducees, some Sadducees at the time, who didn't believe in the resurrection. And I think Paul had to uh, debate that sect as well. But for those who did believe in the resurrection, they believed it was at the end of time, and there was going to be a group, all of humanity, right? Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting death. But what's going on here is that Jesus' resurrection was completely different from that Jewish thought. It was within history, not at the end, 
And it was only him that resurrected, not all of humanity or not a group of humanity that resurrected. So it's not likely that the Jews at the time would make this up because it totally went against what they believed at the time, what they grew up with, what the thought was. So that's the argument there. Yeah, it's, it's, that is dead on. Yeah. Yeah. So next one, guys. This one, I think, is one that a lot of people know, uh, that the disciples were willing to suffer for the truth, for what they believed. Because I think the, the saying goes, you know, people will, people will die for what they believe to be truth, but no one will die for what they know is a lie. So, so, it asks, so you have to ask the question, why would the disciples die in horrible ways, which is attested in history, if the resurrection was false, if they thought that the resurrection was false? So here, it says, while many have died for something they believed to be true, the earliest Christians were willing to suffer and die for what they knew to be true. Thus, the willingness of the earliest Christians to suffer and die for their beliefs highlights their sincerity in a way unique to them, since they knew what they were willing to suffer for was either true or false. Um, we also possess strong historical evidence that certain key eyewitnesses were martyred for their faith. Peter, for example, was crucified, James stoned, Paul was beheaded. Whatever they saw was worth giving their lives for. They sealed their testimonies, their blood. So again, guys, why this argument here is important is because people will die for what they believe to be true, but no one will die for what they believe to be false. So right. when someone comes to you and asks and says that, oh, you know, Jesus never resurrected, you have to just, you know, throw it back at them. Well, why is it that Paul had a miraculous conversion? He, Saul, who was crucifying, or sorry, uh, persecuting the church, he had this miraculous encounter, was converted, began to believe in Jesus, and, you know, faced hell and high water, so to speak, for what he believed to be true. Why did these disciples who ran away at the crucifixion of Jesus suddenly have this change of demeanor, have this change of heart, and, you know, die for what they believe to be true? And people can't explain that. They'll say, okay, I, that's true, that happened, they died, okay, that's historical. But the answer is, I don't know what they saw. I don't know. <laughs> so that's how usually those kind of conversations go. Yeah, absolutely. Look, here's, here's the, the number one thing. This is the truth, right? Um, we're giving you an intellectual argument about the truth of God's word. And, and that is the important thing to understand. Um, those who deny truth, okay, they suppress the truth. God says it is in his word in Romans 118 that, uh, that the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven on all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, right? So the truth is that the disciples understood some important factors. Number one, that Jesus was dead, okay? They, they knew he was dead and that he was killed. Um, and how did they know that? Well, the Roman uh, soldier put a spear into the side of Jesus, exactly. right? So blood and water came out, which meant that Jesus was physically dead. They didn't even have to bother breaking the leg because there was nothing around that. He was dead, yep. all right? There were witnesses to his death. These weren't stupid disciples that just were like, well, we guessed that he was dead and he came back to life. Number one, he was buried in a tomb where the, rock, the stone put in the tomb was several tons. A, a man so wounded like Jesus could not have rolled away the tomb. Okay, there was Roman guards too. And there were Roman guards. Yeah. They were there. They were watching it. They were hired by the Roman. And if you let a, 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 a prisoner escape, you were put to death. Yep. For them to be allowed Jesus to escape went the death penalty. And the Roman Empire knew that this was so credible that they didn't execute the Roman soldiers. They didn't execute it. 
because they instead they wanted them to lie about it. Okay, they wanted to cover it up. Look at our politics today. If you want to make something disappear, you don't do away with the individual. That just brings it out more. You just kind of like cover it up and, and try one lie on top of another lie until eventually people believe that the Holocaust didn't happen, that 9-11 was a made-up television drama, whatever you want to say. And that's exactly what is coming in here is the disciples, they saw, they were witnesses, but they also saw and touched and felt the resurrected Jesus. In fact, yeah. you not only get that description from Paul, but you also get it from John. I saw, I heard, I felt, I touched yeah, the resurrected Jesus. Yeah. In First John, he, in the opening paragraph of First John, his epistle, he writes that. And so this was a, a, a very deep understanding that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Okay. Um, Dr. Bergman uh, that I mentioned, he talks about this. There's, there's no way that Jesus, after suffering everything he could, could have removed the stone himself. Exactly. There's no way that Jesus wasn't dead on the cross. Yep. So when they saw Jesus, the dead man, rose from the dead, and they touched him, and they saw the holes in his hand and in his side and in his, and in his feet, even doubting Thomas, who said, I'm not going to believe unless I see, believed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was so powerful. I mean, that, and that's what we're trying to communicate to you guys. We're just trying to give you a logical uh, a defense for our faith, right? And for those who might not be Christians watching this, look and see these facts yourself. Again, no credible historian of the New Testament or New Testament historian worth their salt can sit there and tell you that there is no credible evidence for the Christian burial and, and resurrection of Jesus. All they can tell you is that, hey, they believe that this happened and we can see the changed lifestyle. We can see the historical evidence. We can see the extra biblical evidence. But personally, I don't know what it is. That's all they can, they can only go as far as to say, I don't know what it is. But they can't tell you that there's no historical evidence for it. Um, so that's what we're trying to communicate to you guys. So last piece here, the last evidence here, and I, I touched on a little bit here or beforehand was the conversion of non-believers. And, and Brother Stefan uh, talked a little bit about this as well. After just was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, we see in the Gospels that these people who, like Doubting Thomas or like Saul, who either persecuted the church or doubted the claims of Jesus, had a miraculous transformation that led them to be followers of Jesus. So Paul provides his own account of his conversion from being a persecutor of the church to a follower of Jesus. James, the brother of the Lord, was considered a skeptic during Jesus' ministry. He however, then became the leader of the early church and was a pillar of the church that Paul met with while on his trips to Jerusalem. Paul also specifically identifies James as having seen the risen Lord. Um, we can cite other examples of this, but the point of this is that something happened to them. Again, skeptics will look at them and be like, okay, yeah, James, sure, he changed and Paul changed, but they can only say that they don't know what happened. Something happened, they don't know. But the only logical conclusion is that they truly saw the risen Lord so much and they believed in it so much so that they were they were um in a state of mind where they're ready to die for that truth right and why this is so important guys paul goes into this in terms of why the resurrection is so important because what we believe about not even what we believe about the resurrection but whether the resurrection is true or false 
Christianity stands on that, right? Our faith stands on that. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 to 19. Because at that time, some people were doubting the resurrection. They were saying, oh, the resurrection never happened. And Paul basically tells us how important this resurrection is. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And that's what, you know, a lot of these atheists and the skeptics are saying. Now, of course, he's alluding to believers here, but I mean, we could, this can be expanded to non-believers. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead did not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are, all, we are of all men the most pitiable. So what he's saying is that if Christ didn't rise, then we're, of, we're out of all of human history. We're the ones that are most pitiable of all human beings. But then he goes into verse 20 and says, but now Christ is risen from the dead has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So obviously, he, he knows that Christ is risen from the dead. We know that Christ is risen from the dead. That's our hope, right? That we are not dead in our sins and trespasses. That Christ right now is on the right hand of the Father, seated in glory. We have the hope of eternal life through him. And you guys, too, who haven't believed on Jesus Christ through salvation, also can have that same hope. And that's what we're trying to articulate to you through these arguments that we went to. Just quickly, just summarize. We went through multiple sources that test the crucifixion, uh, multiple sources that test the burial of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb that was seen uh, by women and others, the appearance of the risen Christ that radically changed people, that people were worth to, that uh, they were led to die for. Uh, so that's the fifth argument, disciples willing to suffer, and the conversion of non-believers after experiencing the risen Jesus Christ. And again, there's many more arguments that we can make for these things, but those are the six that I found that I thought were worth going into um, tonight. You know, and, and I want to go over again. How do we know that Jesus is God, uh, that God exists? Palm Sunday proves it. And we went over that looking at the scriptures, looking at the archaeology of the command that came from Cyrus in uh, 455 BC on March 14th. And then... 173,880 days later, on April the 6th, uh, AD 32, Jesus comes in and fulfills the Daniel 9.25 prophecy yeah. and says, Oh, Jerusalem, he weeps at Jerusalem. If you had only known that this was the day of your visitation, mm -hmm. this was the day um, that fulfilled all scripture from Leviticus about the palm branches um, all the way through. There should be no doubt in your mind today that Jesus is Lord, that God exists, and that he loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, yeah. to pay the ultimate price so that you could be forgiven if you repent and believe in the gospel message and turn your life over to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I'm going to confess with my mouth my sins to you. I'm going to confess that you are Lord and that God has raised you from the dead. And if you believe that, the scripture says, you are saved and will never be put to shame. So we want to invite you, both Brother Anion and myself tonight, 
to turn to Jesus and say, you know, Lord, I, I don't have all the answers. I, I just know that there's something wrong in the world today. I know that, that there is chaos in the world. I don't understand what's going on, but I, I do know that tonight, this argument that you are God has been made really emphatically with me. The evidence is there. Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you come into my heart and become Lord of my life to become my God? Will you forgive me of my sins? And if you pray that prayer with an open heart before God and you believe it in your heart, confess it with your mouth, Jesus says you will be forgiven. He is faithful and just, 1 John 1, 9, to forgive you of your sins. And you will be made righteous on account of Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah. And what we're asking you to do is to gain eternal life. That's it. Not to live in eternal death, but to gain eternal life through Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what we're calling you to do is just to believe on Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You put it well. So, yeah. So, I mean, that, that basically ends up um, our message for tonight. We went over the scripture for it, the Old Testament scripture that alludes to, you know, Jesus coming on Palm Sunday, um, the prophecy for that, and then the arguments for the crucifixion, burial and resurrection. And next time uh, that we do this, I hope to look at the naturalistic arguments against the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, so that we also have tools to assess those. So just like the, you know, the hallucination there, right? Or Jesus sort of, you know, rolled that stone away, got past the two guards and somehow appeared, oh, I'm, you know, I'm resurrected, despite all those wounds. Just, and that is an actual argument. So we'll, we'll go through that and how we can kind of, you know, tackle those and then give someone the truth despite those claims that they're trying to make. Hey, enjoy yourself tomorrow on Resurrection Sunday. Go tell one and tell someone in the grocery store, happy resurrection day. Um, put them on a little shock there. They will be freaked out that you said resurrection Sunday. They'll ask you what that means. Um, but go share the truth and the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, thank you for joining us here on Apologetic Saturday. As Brother Ion and myself came here to present to you the proof of Easter week, resurrection week, and how it relates that God, Jesus is God and that God exists. Good night, everyone, and God bless. Good night, guys.